David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendour, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift his head high. morning again everyone like we heard before my name's Tim uh, it's my great joy and privilege this morning to be speaking to you from God's Word uh, so please make sure that you've got it open in front of you so that way you can make sure that what I'm saying is what God's saying and that I'm just not making things up uh, having now heard God's voice from his word uh, I think it's a good thing to pray so please join with me as we speak to God Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we pray that as we read this morning, that you would, in your kindness, please keep me from error, and that you would speak to us and encourage and correct us where we need it. Please help us to listen well, uh, to not forget what we've heard, but that you would transform us more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Who's in charge? Well, in an episode of the popular American political drama, The West Wing, the President of the United States is shot one night in an assassination attempt. In the following days, the press, the government, the American people, they're all asking the same question. When the President was unconscious, when he was in surgery, who was in charge of the country? One of the characters puts it like this, quote, the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State didn't know who they were taking their orders from. I wasn't in the Situation Room that night, but I'll bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that it was Leo, who no one elected. For 90 minutes that night, there was a coup in this country. The question on everyone's lips, who was in charge? Now, even though that's a fictional scene from a TV show, it's still a question that might weigh on your mind from time to time. Who's in charge? Who's in charge of Wollongong? Who's in charge of Australia? Who's in charge of our world? And especially over the last 12 months or so, did God just clock out of work one day last March and take the rest of the year off? And what about this year? What about 2021? How can we have any confidence in what this year will look like? Who's in charge? Well, this morning, as we look at Psalm 110, we come across the one who is in charge. We come across God's right-hand man. 
And we'll be asking the question from Psalm 110, who is King David's Lord and where is he today? Which brings us to our first point. If you're the sort of person who likes taking notes, uh, my outline will sort of come up on the screen as we go through it. But movement one, or the first half of the psalm, the king, verses one to three. So have a look with me at verse one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now there's two main characters, I guess, to put it that way, in this psalm. You've got the Lord, which Lord is in all capital letters in your Bible, and the one who King David, the author of this psalm, calls my Lord, which may just have a capital L or is in lowercase letters. Now, when the Old Testament has the word Lord in all capitals, just like in verse 1, that is God's personal name, Yahweh. That is, the name of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the creator and sustainer of all things. And God speaks. He speaks to someone who King David calls my Lord, or David's Lord, which is a title... That means master. So it's David's master is who God is speaking to. Now for the purposes of our sermon this morning, to hopefully avoid any confusion, which some of you may be really confused already, which is fine. When I'm speaking, I'll refer to the Lord, in all capitals, as God. And the one who David calls my Lord, I'll refer to him as David's Lord, or simply the Lord. So... Let's just dwell on that for a little few seconds. Okay, so in verse 1, God speaks to David's Lord. And he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, to sit at the right hand is to be given the position of honor or power or prominence or authority. David's Lord is God's right-hand man. He is entrusted as God's agent in the world. And because of his power and authority, his enemies are made his footstool, symbolizing their defeat. Now, there's a picture on the screen of a 15-meter-high carving on the side of a cliff in Iran of the ancient Persian king Darius I. So that's him there the sort of rightmost standing up guy. Now, he's depicted here as the victorious king, having enslaved and defeated his enemies. As you can see, many of them look like they're in shackles. And if you look closely enough, you might see that there's actually someone under Darius's feet, symbolizing that, at least in this inscription, in this carving, that Darius's enemies will be destroyed. He has crushed them under his feet. Now, it's that same sort of language that's used in Psalm 110. As God speaks to David's Lord, he will have his enemies under his feet like a footstool, conquered and destroyed. And the result of God's command in verse 1 is then shown in verses 2 and 3. This great king, the Lord, David's Lord, will rule his people. So look with me in verse 2. 
God says, rule in the midst of your enemies. But if you look further on, he does not rule where everyone is opposed to him. But in verse 3, we see some who are on his side, his troops, it says. Verse 3, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord's people are not opposed to him. They're with him. They're his. They're ready to serve. Now, for us today reading this psalm, it's a little bit ambiguous when the Lord of David will rule. From looking at the NIV, at least, the New International Version of the Bible, which many of you may have, it seems like it's a future event. So verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter. Verse 3, your troops will be willing. Your young men will come to you. So for Israel, who were the original audience about 3,000 years ago, this was certainly true. They were looking forward in anticipation of fulfillment of God's promises. But for us sitting here this morning, where do these promises fit? Is this something that we should look forward to as well? Or is there someone right now, a Lord, the King, who is seated at God's right hand? ruling over the world, ruling over you and me, is someone in charge? Well, we're going to have to wait and see. So moving forward on to point two, the second movement of the psalm, the second half, the priest, verses four to seven. So God speaks again, just like he does in verse one, God swears an oath in verse 4. Have a look with me. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord, again in all capitals, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that is David's Lord, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. That's a very interesting name. I'm not sure if anyone here this morning thinking about potential baby names. Melchizedek, I haven't heard it before, could be unique. There you go, you can have that for free. But who is Melchizedek? Well, in order to understand who he is, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 14, which I believe is on the screen. You can also look at it, turn in your Bible if you like, but, or you can follow along. So, Genesis 14, verse 17 after Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Now Genesis chapter 14, which we've just read, and Psalm 110 are the only places that Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament. And here he's only in three verses, and then he's gone. Quite literally, you blink and you miss him. 
So why is he significant to be brought up again in Psalm 110? Why does God swear an oath that the Lord is to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? What does that mean? Well, in Genesis 14, when he first appears, we learn three things about who Melchizedek is. So the first point is that he is king. He's king of Salem, which is a city that at one point then had its name changed to Jerusalem. Secondly, is he's priest of God Most High. So he's someone as a priest who would go between God and the people. Now those two things are really important to understand. This Melchizedek is king and priest at the same time. And the third point is that he does not die. In Genesis 14, and indeed the rest of the Bible, there's no mention of Melchizedek's birth, or his parents, or his death. So it just sort of lives forever, because it doesn't say, and then he died. Now this idea is further explained in Hebrews chapter 7. If you'd like to look that up later, you can write that down. So this is why the decree to David's Lord is that he is a priest forever. Because he, just like Melchizedek, is the king, Psalm 110 verse 1, and the priest, Psalm 110 verse 4, who does not die. He is priest forever. And again, similar to the first half of the psalm, in the second half now, God's decree in verse 4, which we've just spent some time looking at, is then followed by the result. So God says you are a priest forever. And then what does that mean now in verse 5 to 7? David's Lord brings judgment on the nations. Have a look with me at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. David's Lord, again, is at God's right hand in verse 5. He's in the place of authority and honor and prominence. And now, as well as ruling his people like he did in verse 3, he brings judgment in verse 6. The enemies that he ruled in the midst of in verse 2 are destroyed. God has given his right-hand man control. He's given him authority to act on his behalf, to lead his people, and to judge his enemies. And when the Lord has defeated his enemies, verse 7, he will be refreshed and confident in his victory. Verse 7 says, he will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Now this drinking from a brook or a river or a stream is possibly a reference to 1 Samuel chapter 30. David and his men are pursuing their enemies, the Amalekites. This is the same David who wrote this psalm. And they come across a stream. Now some of his men are tired and they stay there, but David and the rest of his army move on. They keep pursuing their enemy and they eventually track them down and destroy them. And I think it's quite likely that David had this event in mind 
when he wrote Psalm 110. When he wrote of the one who would come after him, who would not grow weary in the pursuit of his enemies, but who would defeat them and lift up his head in victory. So who is it that he's writing about? Well, to answer that question, we'll need to do a little bit of Bible flipping. So if you flip forward in your Bible, keep a part of your body in Psalm 110, but flip forward to Acts chapter 2. Now, Psalm 110 verse 1 is actually the most quoted and most referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament. So you could almost turn anywhere in the New Testament, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're just going to have a look at one reference, Acts chapter 2, verse 32 to 36. Some of you might be familiar with the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, but Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and the Holy Spirit has just been poured out, and now the apostles, or Peter, is preaching to the Jews. So we jump in partway through his sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. The Apostle Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Did you take the few quotes and references to Psalm 110 there? This psalm that we're looking at this morning points forward to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, our King and Priest forever. Why is Jesus the one to whom God said, sit at my right hand? Well, Acts 2 verse 32, because God raised Jesus to life because of his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the one who right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is the one whose enemies are being made his footstool. All things are being put under his feet. Jesus is the one who right now is ruling in the midst of his enemies, those who are opposed to him. Jesus is the one to whom God has said, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the one who will execute judgment among the nations, completely destroying those who oppose him. Jesus is King David's Lord, sitting at God's right hand as our king and priest. In answer to our question before. Now, about a month ago, we celebrated Christmas. All around the country, in shopping centres, in churches, Sunday school plays, carol services, what have you else, we saw nativity scenes of shepherds and angels and wise men all gathered around a man and his wife in a barn and their newborn baby. And we sung of this newborn king who had come into the world bringing joy and hope and peace. And what a wonderful thing to celebrate together 
to be reminded of God's love in sending his only son into our world. But babies grow up. Mary's boy child is not in a manger anymore. Now, it's not particularly challenging to us and our comfortable way of life to sing of the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, a baby doesn't offend us with his words because babies don't speak, they don't say anything. But the baby Jesus grew up. He became a man. He said things, he did things, he taught things that caused quite a stir amongst those around him. He divided crowds, he sent people away, he made people angry, he was hated, and he was put to death. But Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead as the Lord of Psalm 110, the supreme Lord and ruler over all things. He is our eternal king and priest. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus doesn't have just some authority or just spiritual authority, whatever that means. He does not just have authority on a Sunday. He doesn't just have authority in this church building or in some church buildings. But the risen Lord Jesus Christ has authority over everything. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper uh, captured it well when he wrote this. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. You may agree with that statement, or maybe you don't, I don't know. But how does that, how does the truth of Jesus' lordship really sink down beyond a Sunday morning into the day-to-day? Now, for me in particular, uh, when I was in year 12 and looking forward to, well, with dread, the HSC, uh, but then looking beyond that to, well, what do I do then with going to uni, What is it that I want to do with the rest of my life? And reflecting on that, I think that was the problem. That question. What do I want to do with the rest of my life? Although I was a Christian, and I certainly think that I was saved and believed in Jesus, but that hadn't sunk down into my heart and out into every day. How does this truth of Psalm 110 change our decision making. Now if I could go back a few years to year 12 uh, and make that decision again, I may still have gone to university. It wasn't wrong to go to uni. But in my thinking, how does Jesus is Lord mean, how does that mean, what does that mean for me in making decisions, in thinking about what I want to go to uni? Where do I want to work? Whatever it is. When I think through my reasons for something, when I'm faced with a decision, what should be my primary concern as a Christian? Well, it's Jesus is Lord. How I use my time, how I use my energy, how I use my money, all these things should reflect that Jesus is the Lord of everything to those around me. 
And so in your day-to-day, -day, whatever it is that you do during the week, are you consciously thinking Jesus is Lord? That Jesus has authority over your home? That Jesus has authority over your work? Over your wallet? Over how you entertain yourself? Over what you look at on the internet? Over your relationships? Over how you speak to your husband or to your wife? How you speak to your children, to your parents, to your friends, your workmates? Over every facet of your existence. Jesus has authority as the Lord because he is risen from the dead. Now looking back into Psalm 110, there are two groups of people. The first, if you look, is in verse 3. They're his willing people. And the second is verse 6, the nations. Now this is where we run into another problem. Because you and I, as people not from Israel, are we're from the nations. We're also called the Gentiles. We're not the original Jewish people that God called out for himself. Naturally, when left to our own devices, if we could freely choose in our state as sinful human beings, we're enemies of God. And we're enemies of Christ because of our hearts. And so when Jesus, having risen from the dead, now seated at God's right hand, returns to judge, in verse 5 it says, on the day of his wrath, how will he treat us? Well, it says he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Jesus is returning to judge. He will judge the nations. He will judge Australia. He will judge you and me. Do you believe that's true? Or do you have the same attitude as Mick Dundee in the Australian classic film Crocodile Dundee? He says... I read the Bible once. You know God and Jesus and all them apostles? They're all fishermen, just like me. Yeah, straight to heaven for Mick Dundee. Yeah, me and God, we'd be mates. What is that even based on? Wishful thinking. And the typical Australian, it'll be fine, attitude. Well, as Psalm 110 makes clear, it will not be fine. God is not your mate. But there is hope. Now, if you've just joined us for the first time on a Sunday or tuning in for the first time, it's not all bad news. There is hope, even in Psalm 110, the rest of the Bible, and especially the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 7, which will be up on the slide, verse 21 to 25, the author writes this for us. If you want to turn your Bibles as well, you can, or follow along. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. But he, that is Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those, those priests, 
since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Not only is Jesus the Christ, the King, the one who is ruling at God's right hand, but he is also our priest forever. He makes intercession for us. He goes on our behalf to God so that despite our sin, our rebellion against God, against his king, Jesus is always able perfectly to make us right before God so that we will not be judged like the nations, although we deserve it, but we can rightly be called his people because of what Jesus has done, because of his priesthood. Friends, hear what God says in his word this morning. Jesus is in charge. He is God's right-hand man. His enemies are being put under his feet. He rules right now, even though there are many opposed to him. He ruled over 2020. He rules over 2021. So come to him. He is our king and priest forever. And trust in him. Judgment is coming. Jesus is going to judge the nations. One day he will return. Do not be like those in Psalm 110 who will be judged and destroyed. Don't even be like those who think, yes, Jesus is Lord, but that doesn't mean anything for your life. Trust in him. Know he is the Lord and submit to him. Be like those who freely offer themselves to him because Jesus freely offers salvation from the judgment to come. So from Psalm 110, trust God's promises. Fulfilled now in Jesus, that Jesus is the mighty king who rules over everything. And secondly, Jesus is our priest forever. And he is able to completely save us from what we rightly deserve if we trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in Psalm 110. We thank you for your grace and your mercy shown toward us. That because of what Jesus has done, because he rules, because he's risen from the dead, we will not be judged as our actions deserve, but we can be saved because of Jesus and what he has done. Because of his permanent priesthood. And we thank you that he is able to save us completely. Amen.